I have a picture for you this morning that I wanted to share. Have you ever seen this church before? This is a picture of the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church, which is located across the street from the Zoological Gardens near Wittenbergplatz in Berlin, Germany. The church is comprised of those two buildings that you see right there in the in the center of the picture there, both the older one that's that's there on the left with the broken steeple and the clock, as well as that more modern building there with the colorful block stained glass windows that you can see on the right. When I used to go to Berlin every so often, I would usually stay somewhere within walking distance of that church, often within eyeshot. I've even worshipped there on a Sunday morning one time. What you're looking at there is a church that was mostly bombed out during the Second World War and then rebuilt afterwards in the skeleton of the old structure into a half-Prussian, half-modern structure that it is today. Kaiser Wilhelm I. Emperor Wilhelm I is who this church is named after, and it was commissioned by his grandson, Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was the last king of Prussia before Prussia, the German Empire, came to an end in World War I. The original version of this church got underway and was completed in the 1890s. And Wilhelm II, the one who had that church built, was in fact one of the chief personalities often held responsible for starting the First World War. In the 1890s, right around the same time that he commissioned this church, he decided to set Germany's course on the road towards national greatness, which included a major military buildup and the commissioning of highly visible monumental buildings just like this one. He started to run roughshod over old international alliances, made a new habit of using provocative and aggressive statements toward his European neighbors, and began to take international actions that were threatening, invasive, even colonialist. Actions which ultimately and inevitably, historians tend to agree, resulted in the start-up of a war that took over 9 million lives and left almost another 13 million wounded. This church was commissioned in honor of Kaiser Wilhelm I because he was the great unifier of the empire, because he had become a symbol of the power and of the strength of the German people and its military greatness. And this church was built to be great, to look great and majestic, to say visually somehow that God was on the side of German aspirations to greatness. Just look at how great the churches are that we build for him. Of course, that idea of building great churches to show that God was on your side was a much, much older idea, but it also didn't stop with Wilhelm II either. And neither, of course, did 
German aspirations to global military greatness or nationalistic zeal. The worst was yet to come. But by the end of the Second World War, those ambitions had been definitively crushed, definitively chastised, and stifled by the international community from ever happening again. Berlin was flattened, most of it rubble. There was just the occasional structure standing in tatters like this church by the end of it to tell the story. That's why there's so little historic architecture in Berlin and that so much of it looks like this. You can probably see there in that picture that the top of the steeple was never rebuilt so that it remains a powerful reminder of something. Something important, I suspect. But what? But what? Last week I began a new sermon series through Lent on forgiveness in which I'll be preaching through this middle chunk of Paul's letter to the Romans that we've read part of this morning. And what we saw already last week as we got started in chapter 3 is that the apostle begins in the rubble. Where Paul starts his explication of grace in the Christian life is at the point where our ambitions have already failed where our truest drives and instincts have been exposed, and where we too sit, in a manner of speaking, in a spiritual rubble of our own making. He takes us there for a reason. Because like that steeple there in the picture, the picture that Paul lays out for us of our brokenness is supposed to remind us of something. You or that church, as it appeared in 1944 in this metaphor, a monument to failed and corrupted pretensions, a tower of Babel of sorts knocked to the ground. And I want you to take a little bit of an imaginary journey with me right now. I want you to invite you to close your eyes if you feel comfortable doing that. I want you to invite you on this imaginary journey as we put ourselves into the seat of those city planners in those early days after the war. Close your eyes with me and, and look out for a moment and imagine that we're looking out together this morning over this vast pile of rubble that used to be a city. And we come upon this broken spire together in our Survey and what a profound and powerful symbol it is there in its decrepit state, the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church. What a visual reminder of the mistakenness, the brokenness, the hubris of this whole people. What should we do with it? What should we do with it? Now, someone will inevitably speak up first, no doubt, and say, let's tear it down and start afresh. And indeed, that's exactly what those first city planners wanted to do as well. And of course, if we tear it down, we get to start our project from scratch, an entirely blank canvas with which to do something entirely new. 
But then someone, someone, let's imagine it's a lonely, shy voice somewhere in the back of our little survey crowd. Maybe it's Tom Knapp this morning. Someone, the minority opinion, no doubt. Someone says, no, let's keep it. Broken steeple and all. And build a new church that's different, but somehow in a way that never averts our eyes from this sight that stands before us right now. You can open your eyes now if you still have them closed. But now, Paul says in our reading this morning, but now the righteousness of God has been disclosed. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction since all have fallen short of the glory of God, they are now justified by His grace as a gift. And he says a few verses down, there's no longer any opening for boasting. No pride. No, look at me and how good I am, God. Because this choice to forgive, this choice to justify, to set right, isn't about how good you are. It's about how good God is. You see, there are some vantage points in life, and maybe they are rare ones. There are some vantage points that give us a clearer and truer picture of what grace really is, of who God really is, than others. From some vantage points, it must be very difficult to see at all. And I'm imagining here especially the vantage point of Wilhelm II before the war. The vantage point of pride and ambition to greatness. The vantage point of self-sufficiency and invincibility. Perhaps the vantage point of those mountaintops of success that many of us have experienced in our lives that subtly tempt us all, I suspect, to entertain thoughts of grandeur. But there are others. There are others still where the grace, where the truer sight line on who God is, is hard to miss. Paul started us out on this journey to understand grace and the forgiveness of God in the rubble of our human condition because from there, it's hard to miss. Just as the grace that's on visual display in the very building of this church is much harder to miss than it would have been in its pre-war manifestation. The righteousness of God gets put on display, Paul writes, because even while all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, at that very moment, and in view of that, they are now justified by His grace as a gift. A free gift. An undeserved gift. A gift that does nothing else but show just how good God is. Paul uses the word justified there in verse 24 today. They are now justified by His grace as a gift. And that word, that concept to justify Justification. 
is really the central and pivotal concept that Paul uses to describe just what it is that God has done. Just how God has looked out on the rubble of a terrible and irresolvable situation and reached out to heal it and to make it right. And as we saw in last week's passage, just previous to this one, it does appear to be a hopeless situation. And not just because we won't do better, but but because there's something in us, something about our makeup that prevents us on our own from being able to do better. We're striving against our own makeup, our own internal machinery. So when Paul uses that word justify, he's not using it in the way that we often do. When we say that a person is justifying themselves, where they're reaching out for some sort of defense of their actions, some reason why whatever they did is justifiable. No, he means that God has somehow reached into our situation from the outside. Through some work of forgiveness and restoration to set it right. Declare it right. Establish it anew on the on a new footing through Christ. Justify. Justification, in this sense, means to make it right. Which is something we can do only, as he says here, by relying on God through faith. Only God can make this brokenness right. And so we put our faith in God's making right. God's justification. Do you realize that you too participate in and contribute to the intractable brokenness in our world? Sobering fact. That irresolvability of our collective circular trapness. You and I and every one of us participates in that. Every one of us has taken our turn to push that wheel forward. All means all, right? Paul says here that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. And if that's right, unless you're the exception, then that puts us all back in the rubble, doesn't it? And it would appear that there is no way out of the rubble except to come to terms with the fact that I'm partly responsible for this rubble and am in need of forgiveness. And to accept that God, in His sheer goodness, in His sheer goodness, extends a hand of grace to me in my absolute powerlessness to escape the mess that I'm in. That's Pride shattering, Paul says. There's an inescapable vulnerability in that. There's a true self-awakening to our own powerlessness in that. To the fact that we are, by nature, all people in need. I'm a dependent animal. I can't get out of this on my own. I can't do much better than I've done prior to now on my own. I'm in need 
of God's goodness and God's grace. You know, you cannot become a truly forgiving person until you have a face-to-face with the fact that you too are deeply in need of forgiveness. There is no other footing on which that practice can get going. Because without that understanding, without that posture of the soul toward what we're doing when we forgive another, we'll always be reaching down. We'll always be condescending from some perch on high in our forgiveness, weighing the scales and wielding forgiveness like a power that we can barter with and set conditions on. True forgiveness. True forgiveness, at least the kind that's within our power to extend, doesn't reach down. It reaches across. It reaches across because it's a practice that has us relating gracefully to another that finds themselves in the same existential trapness that we ourselves are in. It reaches out across because in it, through God's justifying grace, we're learning to see beyond what is owed and to the broken human being on the other side. It reaches across and not down because as this lesson here today teaches us very plainly, frankly, forgiveness is bigger than you. Forgiveness is bigger than you. Christian forgiveness is an extension of God's work of healing the world and fixing what is broken. You, as a Christian, have been recruited into that global healing work. It's bigger than you. It just is. Jesus doesn't give His disciples the choice about whether this is a practice they're going to take up. Do you know that you are in need of forgiveness? Do you know that you have been justified by God's grace as a sheer gift? A sheer act of God's goodness and nothing else. As a sheer demonstration of just how good God really is. God wants to repair the world in you just because God is so good that He loves the world even in its brokenness. Even in its hatred and rebellion and evil and cynicism. God is just that good. I want to ask you, would you receive afresh that forgiveness today? Would you receive it so that you can be reminded how to extend it? Nothing new can be born from the rubble without it. Let's pray.